Welcome to a special podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Krista Dougherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this special podcast, I'll be talking to three internationally acclaimed and award-winning artists about their creative research into the possibilities of the book as an artwork. Veronica Shepers, Robin Amy Silverberg, and Julie Chen are showing a range of their artist books in a spellbinding new exhibition at the Jack Ginsburg Center for the Book Arts, housed in the Bits Art Museum. Entitled Creative Research, the Artist Books of Shepers, Silverberg, and Chen, the exhibition runs till the 15th of December. The reason I grabbed the opportunity to speak to these three artists is because creative research is central to their practice, but in fascinatingly different ways. Through their diverse artist books, they explore the complexities of personal and intercultural positions, language and meaning-making through being. Veronica Schapers was born in Kusfeld, Germany. She trained as a bookbinder for three years before studying for a diploma in painting and books at the University of Art and Design in Halle, Germany. After a three-month scholarship with the Centro del Bel Libro Oscona in Switzerland, followed by a nine-month scholarship with Naochi Sakamoto in Tokyo, she began her career in 1998 as a freelance book artist working from her own studio in Tokyo. In 2012, Veronica moved back to Germany and now lives and works in Karlsruhe. In her practice, Veronica explores a wide range of materials that offer visual and tactile solutions through the sensual medium. Robin Silverberg is the founder of both Dobbin Mill, a hand papermaking studio, and Dobbin Books, an artist book studio in Brooklyn, New York. She graduated from Princeton University with a BA cum laude in art history in 1980 and began making her own paper in the same year, 1980. Robin has created a great number of artist books, both on her own and in collaboration with other artists all over the US, Canada, Europe, and South Africa. Robin's books embody her research into paper as her preferred material and as a vehicle for multi-sensory experience of touch, reading, and the transfer of ideas. Julie Chen was born in Inglewood, California. She completed an undergraduate degree in printmaking at the University of California, Berkeley in 1984. She subsequently became interested in book arts and got a degree in book arts from Mills College in 1989. She began teaching book arts at Mills College as an adjunct in 1996 and became an associate professor there in 2010. Julie has achieved prominence by creating conceptually sophisticated works that combine traditional techniques such as letterpress printing and hand book binding with more modern technologies such as photopolymer plates and laser cutting. She's known for pushing the structural boundaries of the artist's book with a range of architectural and sculptural approaches. At one point, you will also hear the voice of Jack Ginsburg himself explaining the after exhibition access that is possible for visitors to this unique collection of artist books one of the most comprehensive in the world. Please also note that this recording was done by myself with a single microphone in the Jack Ginsburg Center. 
As a result, the sound quality is not great, but I hope the content is of sufficient interest to make listening to the special Ara podcast worthwhile. Welcome, Veronica, Robin, and Julie, to Johannesburg Witz Art Museum and your exhibition that has just opened and that's going to be running until 15th of December is very much representing your work as creative research through the creation of artist books. So let's just talk about how you approach creative research through the creation of books. And maybe I'll start with Veronica and knowing your interest in particularly in paper and materiality. Could you speak to us and also remember for an audience who perhaps have not yet seen the exhibition to perhaps talk about particular books in the light of your creative research? Okay, so um, I have to explain first that I lived for a long time in Japan. And so my work is very much based on Japanese topics and also materials which I chose and found in Japan. And um, I try to express in my books, not only through printed text, which you read and understand, but also through the materials which you feel and smell, touch and hear, the topic which I'm dealing with. For example, I have one book which uh, works with the Japanese dish okonomiyaki, which is a pancake. And this stands not for, for a recipe of a pancake, but the topic is the misunderstanding of the cultural, uh, like a cultural misunderstanding between Asia and Europe. So it was an example for that many, many Europeans and I suppose also Africans and Americans think of Japan as the country of Zen Buddhism, clear spaces and food like sushi. But it's actually completely different. So it's a very dense country. People don't throw away many things. They keep everything. There are a lot of plastic materials. And this is described with the dish of okonomiyaki. And it's a pancake where you mix everything what you have in your fridge. And then you pour sauce on top and mayonnaise and uh, fish flakes. So it sounds somehow horrible and non-Japanese, but it's a very typical and also delicious dish. And to visualize this book, I choose a paper which is very thin and transparent, and then I started to layer all kinds of drawings connected to this okonomiyaki. And they're very abstract drawings, actually the sauce patterns which you have when you pour mayonnaise on top of it. So it works with a theme of layering, like the dish does, and there's also this kind of um, olfactorial addition to that book, because I used some oiled paper, which was actually from Korea, but it has a very strong smell, it's a paper you normally use to cover your floor. But when you open the box, you have this oil immediately coming to your nose. And this is the same kind of sensation you have when you go to this kind of restaurant with a griddle plate and fried okonomiyaki. And when you come home, this oil thing is stuck into your clothes. So that is something which I, I try to express different things which belong to the seams through material, materials like special papers or also olfactorial sensations. Robin, your practice. Hi, um, I'm both a book artist and a paper maker, so I make all my material other than occasional books, but almost everything has been my own material. And the reason I make my own paper is that I want total control over every aspect of the book and the substrate I want activated. And so it's not neutral. 
just like Veronica's books, but I make my own. So if I want certain sounds, as in when the page will be turned, like in the book Rondo, um, I used uh, special hemp's. I did studies, research actually, in the mill, making papers, uh, trying to get the sound range that I wanted so that it would be the experience of turning the pages would echo for me sort of a, a metaphor of the content of the book, which was a story about a woman who's a typist for her entire life in communist Hungary. And so I wanted that sound element. I wanted it to become a sound poem, not only a sound experience through the words but and the content of the words and the intention of the words, but also in the page turning. Smells also at different times are very important to me and different fibers have different smells. Um, sometimes they're symbolic, um, a book that's not here, uh, From Dreams to Ashes, uh, the, I chose a fiber that is connected to remembering dreams in the United States that they used to use, called mugwort. It's a weed. It's a nasty weed. We hate it in New York, but um, in actuality, it was used in colonial times to stuff pillows so people could remember their dreams. So since I make my material to add layers of meaning, which give me enjoyment, and also I think load the work itself I make those kind of choices, which means that I have to do research to learn about the fibers or learn about how I can get the transparencies I want or how I can get the luminosity I want. So I do a lot of material research and we're asking about materials. Well, thank you, Rob. And Julie? So a lot of what I do um, centers around the structure of the book. So I'm, I think all three of us are really interested in developing an experience for the reader. And I think Veronica and Robin do it more through the materials that they use. And for me, it's really about the book structure and how the, the reader will interact with the book and how they're going to reveal the content. And um, so one of the books I can talk about is Panorama, which is a book I did. The topic is um, climate change. So I did all this research about climate change because it was a really scary topic for me. And I didn't know how I was going to turn it into a book, but I felt like I needed to sort of do this this um, uh, process of discovery for myself as an artist and then figure out how to translate that into an experience for a reader, into a book experience. And um, after I did the research, I started to think about the message that I wanted the audience to have. and. I wanted it to go back and forth between being kind of intimate, but also scary to, to having these moments of beauty so that the audience wouldn't be completely overwhelmed by the dire message. So it has, the book starts out with a folded structure. So you're revealing this kind of difficult content sort of fold by fold. And then you think about that for a minute. You turn the page and there's a giant pop-up. And the pop-up also has dire information on it, but it also has beauty. And it's kind of like one of those unexpected things where you're not expecting the book to pop up, up uh, especially a book this wide. And then it would go back to a folded section where you're, at this point, I think the reader, okay, I'm going to experience something heavier because I'm back to the folding, unfolding. And then you turn the page and there's another giant pop-up and then it ends with the the folded section again, but by this point, I'm hoping that the reader kind of has a rhythm going, and even though it's dire, they can sort of 
encompass the message. So, but I'm doing that mostly through the structure of the book. Um, although materials are important, I think for me the structure is the most the thing that that really draws me to making artist books. Would like to add one thing? Is yes. If you see uh, our books, I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me it's always what you see is just the tip of an iceberg. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of research and I make dummies and it's a big, big amount of work. And then in the final, it always takes one year, a whole project, in the final few months it just goes to an end and then I make a book. But what is behind, what you don't see, it's just, uh, it's just I would say, at least five times what uh, you see in the final book. So there's a lot of things, you go not on a straight way, but you make all these detours and they give you new new ideas and imagina imaginations. So it's, it's sometimes very frustrating also. It's a long, long way. And sometimes you have a happy outcome and it's very nice, but it's not that you just have an idea and you follow up, but you have to keep in mind that it's always just... Yes. I think all three of us have, um, I think all three of us have loaded content. The content is the driving force. Um, and we just try to figure out how we can communicate that content, but we have to learn about the content. So, you know, whether it's some historical event that, you know, Veronica would be dealing with or, you know, whatever we're doing, um, we have to figure it out. Um, so the Rondo is actually based on a, a Hungarian novelist book, uh, and I had to learn about him, I had to learn about his ideas, see what I wanted to take from that and what did I want to communicate further. And so I think that, that it's... You know, you asked about materiality, we can talk about materiality, but I think research for, for at least us as artists is every aspect. So the power of a really good artist book is that you don't, uh, you don't ignore any aspect of it. And, and you do the work, which is some preparatory and it's often research-based to resolve every aspect. So it's an algamine. You know, Christopher Frayling makes this distinction between three different kinds of research. And there's the first kind, which I think you're referring to, which is where the artist researches in order to produce the work, as in describing what went into your thinking around how to actualize the idea or the interpretation that, that comes from the text. Mm -hmm. But do you ever feel in your work as artists creating books that you're using the creation of the work to advance knowledge as opposed to knowledge that manifests in the work? I could give one example of that, but I would say yes. Um, it's a book called Affidavit, and it's a day in the life of the artist, the text I wrote. What I chose to do was end each page with a, a paragraph, which I'm not going to paraphrase very well, but it's basically I, Robin Ami Silverberg, the undersigned, solemnly swear that I am a fraud and the signature below has nothing, I have nothing in common with. And then I went out and so there's seven parts of the day, you know, in, in reference to the day in the life of a writer, artist, etc. And I went out and had each page um, um, notarized. And the interaction with the notaries was really what the book was about because it was an engagement about what is identity, what is signature, what are the meaning of these validating forms of who we are and who we are not. And um, at great cost and effort because sometimes they confiscated my 
IDs. They, you know, they got angry at me because they, they read the text. They, they didn't read the text and they just wanted the money. That was one thing. But if they read the text, you're a fraud. What am I? You want? You know, so it was this kind of ongoing engagement, and and it was painful because day after day it was an addition of ten, so seventy notaries I had to get through to uh, seventy-seven for my art, my artist copy. But that engagement, I realized, was what the book really was interesting and apart. Uh, was the meaning of it, but it was also a learning experience to, for them and for me, or some of them, and for, sometimes for me, to learn about how people viewed identity and the signifiers of identity. So that was the process of creating it actually was a learning experience that I, I'm glad it's over, but I did learn about sure. it. <laughs> Julie, can you speak to the research aspect and how perhaps your engagement with the form of the book is part of the understanding that is reached through the work? I think when I do research on a topic that has to do with the book, I'm not trying to write a research paper or, you know, bring in primary sources and come up with new ideas in knowledge specifically, but, but really trying to translate that research into art. And so what I think the new knowledge that comes out of that for myself and for my audience, hopefully, is that they're learning about my interpretation of what I have researched, which is not, again, I'm not researching it in the service of, of inventing something or reporting something. I'm, I'm researching in the service of creating an experience of the, whatever the knowledge is. So, so I do think it adds to new knowledge, but not in the direct way that, say, a, a science researcher would be contributing to knowledge. I think art contributions to knowledge is really experiential, and it's really about drawing in the, the experience of the, the viewer and having them sort of experiencing what the artist is giving, and then they add to the, their own experience to that as well. And, Hopefully what comes out at the end is new knowledge, but it's not always predictable what, what that knowledge is going to be. And Veronica? I think I should, I want to make the people think about the topic. It's not that I always add new knowledge, but my books, when I describe them or show them, on the very first uh, glimpse, they have something which people make sometimes laugh. But all these topics are not really topics you should laugh about. And a very small work I did was about the theme of absence and I got written a poem with the theme of absence and what I then did I started to, to look with who are persons who are absent and I found all these placeholders for passports. I did a lot of research to find out where these people live and in their ID cards their addresses always mentioned. So what I did I mailed all these po this poem I printed and then I mailed it to these absent persons, these placeholders and while Doing this research on placeholders, I found it's very interesting because sometimes it's very racist to which person you choose to be the placeholder of your country. And sometimes in Switzerland, they try to add everything. They have an Italian name living in Swiss German and uh, with a French street, so they try to add everything. But it's very interesting to see, to find out what people or national, the nation is thinking about a typical person of their country. So... That was one part, and then I mailed everything, and also, which came, so I wanted all these boxes to have back with all the stamps, because the people's, the placeholders are actually not existing. 
and most of them came back. Some never came back. So I think there must have been some persons who just threw it away, which I also find very interesting because you cannot deliver a package and then you destroy it or throw it away. Many of them came back with all the remarks, but one was opened, which I also found very interesting because you shouldn't open a person uh, address parcel which you cannot deliver. And that was in Switzerland, actually. And then they <laughs> inserted a letter and made it back to me. So this project was, in the first glimpse, it is somehow funny, or it's funny and a very simple piece of mail art. But if you look deeper, it, you see all the different structures of what uh, these uh, placeholders are meant to be, because they symbolize their country and how the people or the post offices or officials of the country treated uh, these packages to the placeholders, which actually do not exist. But if you, I don't know, maybe you have John Doe here in South Africa or... It's a very typical name, like Max Mustermann in Germany. And if you see a package to Max Mustermann, you laugh. And then but what do you do? And how did that manifest in the final book? Oh, these boxes with all the stamps which came back, they were then the cover for the book. So you see it here also in the exhibition. Um, yeah, some came back completely damaged and some they were treated very nicely with all kind of... That's also different of every nation, how the stamps are put on the packages when they mm -hmm. mail it back. So it says a lot indirect about uh, different nations. And I was under the impression that most artist books are one-offs. Is that not, that's yeah. not the case? Do you... Well, there are, there are artists who do just one-offs mm -hmm. and there are artists who do larger editions and it's, it's a range and it's a range sometimes based on materials. If you're doing an offset book, you can obviously make a thousand of them. Um, since I make my own paper, I'd prefer to just make two, as in I keep one, I sell one, but I usually, I do five, 10 or 15 are my usual numbers um, because just I happen to, you know, I make the content, I do, I make the paper, I, then I do the printing or drawing or whatever, and I do the binding and the boxing and it's just very labor intensive and there's too many other ideas to spend a lifetime on. The ones you see, one seems to get to, so uh, that I choose small numbers unless there's symbolic meaning to. Like I have a book called Just Thirty Words, so I have to do an edition of thirty painfully. <laughs> so, but uh, I think that we all do editions. Mm -hmm. um, I think they make larger editions than I do because they're actually wonderful printers, which I am not. <laughs> and Julie, do do you? typically work to commissions or just impulse or do you work on a series of books as part of a project? No, I, I never do, well hardly ever do commissions. It's really just whatever I feel like working on, you know, so I usually make one book a year and um, it's not always clear to me what topic I'm going to, or what I'm going to be doing research on until it's time to start. Sometimes I have things planned out in advance, but sometimes I'm kind of open to whatever happens, you know, wh whatever comes to mind at the time. And it's usually something I've been mulling over for a while, but it hadn't floated to the surface. But I usually do editions of around 50. And it's because I, I do letterpress printing, which for people who don't know anything about letterpress, there's a lot that goes into the front end of letterpress. So you do a lot of work to get your, your, pages ready for the press. There's a lot of investment monetarily and time-wise for printing. So it doesn't really make sense to just print five, at least not for me. So I used to do a hundred 
But then that sort of what Robin was talking about, it would take years and years and years to finish putting all these books together because that my books have a lot of pieces and there's a lot of labor that goes into that. So about 15 years ago, I split it in half and did 50, which still takes years, but fewer years than the 100 does. But, but yeah, I like the fact that because I'm doing an edition, the book can exist in a number of different locations. And so it can be really accessible to a wider audience. But I'm also mindful of the fact that not everybody has access to the means of production. So especially with letterpress, there's people who just don't have access to presses and how are they going to make their work? But then there are people like Robin who are making paper. There's just no way, unless they start a paper factory, that they're going to make 50 copies of a book. because they're, So I think all of our books have that limitation. That's why none of us make 1,000 coffee editions. <laughs> but, but we all have different numbers that work for us. And Veronica, the impulses for you in creating a book, or you, how do you? For me, it's always, I would say I'm in between, so I make like 30 copies, <laughs> um, which is what I can do in my small workshop, but it's not, I wouldn't manage to do 100 copies. And I don't do one of a kind because the input is so high that um, I very often try new techniques or experiment a lot. And this costs not only money and material, but also a lot of time. So in the end, when I find a way how it works, I should at least make like 20 or 30 copies too. And also I think it's good if there are different uh, libraries, collections, because you want really to be the people to see and read them. I should add that I actually do a lot of one-offs because that's an opportunity for me to experiment and explore. Um, and sometimes after I've done the one-off, I feel wonderful about it or I feel like I really have something substantial and then I have to think, okay, so how can I translate that into a multiple? And it does go through changes. Uh, there's actually a Jack in this collection. I don't know, I didn't notice if the, if the Jules book, you have the one-off here and the, so I made the one-off and I thought, oh, I have to do this in an edition and he insisted on taking both. So you could have that, but they're very different, but they have the same text but it was different solutions on how to do things in multiple. And in terms of content and ideas, I tend to obsess about certain things and I just have to do as many artist books until I go on to the next idea that becomes very important. But I'm talking about the larger ideas, uh, some things like interlinearity, the what words cannot say and what is not said in in context of language. That went on for at least 10 years or, uh, you know, misogyny in language and you know, so there's there's periods of work in umbrella ideas until I feel like either I can't stand it anymore or or I've, I'm done or I'm I must say for me as a, a viewer there is a frustration in an exhibition like this for Veronica for instance you talk about the smell of the book and particular papers and that's exactly what you can't interact with in an exhibition if you own the book it's different but in an exhibition all one can look at is the display but speak to the white the um, you know the question of how to exhibit artist books is a long time conundrum I mean you can have a, a binding if it's special or codifying if it's particularly important or an open page but obviously under glass because you can't let people handle books at an exhibition. Nevertheless, after the exhibition closes, 
they can come to the center and handle the books themselves and spend three hours on one book. And so it's not impossible to come to grips with the book in a, in a significant way. It's just more difficult to show 100 books to thousands of people at an exhibition itself. Yeah, no, no. Thanks for that, Jack. And finally, we are in the digital age in which books in some ways have been devalued as just a way of conveying information. I have students who boast about never crossing the entrance of the library during their entire undergraduate degree. You know, they achievement they, they like to uh, remark upon. To what degree, for you as an artist working with the book, are you aware of or are you responding to this digital age that we live in, in which the great majority of text is now on a, on a computer screen or even, even more commonly on, on a mobile phone screen? So, Veronica. So, I would say you should make the difference between information you gather or you get as a student or the experience of an art artifact, like something of an art book or a printing. So, you still go to museums and you have all these great uh, images on the wall and sculptures and people uh, enjoy. And that's the same with artist books. If you just want to have information, so if I do research, I do a lot of online research and I order my books online and I read ebooks, but that is completely different for me than making a piece of art. So uh, I would compare it, for example, with an NFT, something, a piece of art which you have on your screen and you can enjoy, but it's very different from an actual painting or print. So this will never lose its attraction, I would say. Well, I think, in fact, one could argue that if books are becoming more obsolete by, from, with certain populations, then the, the relevance of artist books increases because, um, as such, they are, not, they are not solely informational, but they are experiences uh, of, a, of another kind and that people will be, are further attracted to. I can only speak for in the United States, but you find with younger people that there's a lot of scrapbooking and knitting and crocheting, and that only increases because people feel like they've spent the day with the screen and they're, you know, you know blue eye exhausted, their hands are, you know, you know, itching for something, and so I think it becomes um, more of an, uh, of an interest. Some people call that erratic, and I would rather just call it another. Uh, human experience. So I, I don't think it's a, I mean, I'm sad for anyone who doesn't want to look at a book or read a book because I think there's nothing in my life that I love more than books pretty much. But at the same time, I think that an artist book certainly has its place and in a new way, you might have to take the words and change them and call it a different kind of object. But I think it's certainly an important piece of our society. I mean, the reason I think that I mean, Jack collects books, you'd have to ask him, but you know, the, in many, many countries, the libraries are collecting artist books because they see this as part of this human continuum. And it's, you know, it's been the container of human beings' most precious information for millennia, most cultures, not all, but on most of them. And so this container has relevance in certain ways. And I don't think that that's going to die out just because you can get information other ways. Julie? I actually feel like the digital age has freed the book from being the container for information. So now the book has can can reach different kinds of potential that um, maybe people weren't realizing it could. 
before. So even though more people read on the screen, I think even people, the young, younger people still recognize what a book is. Like you hold up a book, everyone knows it's a book. And I don't think that's going to die away anytime soon, even though people read more of their information on screens. I think the book as a, what would you say, as a, not a symbol, but as a vehicle? A, I'm, I'm blanking on the word. I'm Physical looking for. object. Yeah, well, as an object mm -hmm. and people that people recognize is not going to die um, anytime soon. <laughs> oh, I know what I was going to say. There were two things I was going to say. One, one is my own daughter really doesn't like to read on paper. You know, she will if there's a book that I recommend and I, I have it on paper. She's like, okay, I'll read it on paper. But it's not her first choice. And she really feels like reading on the screen is so much easier and, and more streamlined. And I don't have a problem with that. But, um, but I also, I prefer to read on paper because, you know, I think our generation of people were used to getting our information that way. And I feel like I retain it better that way. But, um, but th there's, a, there's an analogy I've made with my students in the past, which is the book is sort of like a pocket calculator where we all have access to pocket calculator on our phones and it helps us, you know, add and subtract our bills and pay our, you know, pay restaurant bills and stuff like that. But you have to be a specialist to unlock the higher functions of a pocket calculator. If you turn your phone sideways, there's all these functions. I have no idea what they do. But I feel like that's what we do for books, is we unlock this this higher the higher functions of the book that people, I think, can really appreciate now that the book has been freed from just being the container for information. I think that's a wonderful point to end the conversation. So, Veronica, uh, Robin, and Julie, thank you very much for the time. And I don't know how long you're going to be in Johannesburg, but uh, I hope you enjoy the experience. It just started the spring rains, yes. washing away some of the rubbish and filth, <laughs> and the jacarandas are all in flower. Mm -hmm. So it's probably the best time of the year to be in Johannesburg. Thank you very much. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Chris O'Doherty, the head of artistic research in the Witt School of Arts, and three artists who create artists' books. Veronica Shapers, Robin Amy Silverberg, and Julie Chen. This podcast was hosted and technically produced by myself. It was funded by the Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa Project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witt Johannesburg, South Africa.